Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Gateway, brought to you by the Northern Illinois University College of Business, where your future is without boundaries and our approach is to. I am joined with my incredible co-host, Dr. Biagio Palese. Hello, Biagio. Ciao a tutti. Welcome. Welcome to this episode. So today's episode, Unlocking Analytics, we will explore the ever-changing world of data. During the past decade, the ability to collect, store, analyze, and decipher data has amplified to extremes of human understanding. This tectonic shift has left the landscape of business universally altered. With all of these new capabilities, the future presents a plethora of possibilities. However, these novel tools are making new skill sets essential. The difference between a successful company may come down to knowing what questions to ask and how to interpret the results. So, to help examine this brave new world, the Gateway is proud to welcome Keith Toussaint Jr. Keith has nearly a decade of data analytics experience with a background in empirical economics and data analytics. Keith started his career as an analytics consultant for Deloitte in 2016 and has transitioned to his role as the director of analytics for Vinformatics, a data analytics software development company located in Baton Rouge in 2020. In his current role, Keith provides technical guidance and oversight to a team of data scientists, some which are recent graduates of LSU's MSA program, and hopefully he will be hiring future grads of NIU's Masters of Data Analytics and the Ole Miss program, all of those wonderful things. So Keith, thank you so much for being here. Welcome. We're excited to have you. Thank you guys. I'm so glad to be with you today. So excited to discuss what's going on in our field. Perfect. Perfect. We are excited. So I want to start right off the bat with with defining analytics. I, I feel like that term is tossed around a lot. I feel like it's a very broad concept. In your role, in, in your day-to-day life, what, is, what does analytics mean to you? Um, I think with my team, I tell them all the time that um, when I think of analytics, it is being able to make sense of data to drive decisions. Um, the decision piece is always the end goal, but data on its own doesn't tell you much, you know, whether it's in a structured or unstructured format, uh, it doesn't really matter. So I need you to be able to make sense of it. When I say make sense of the data, um, you know, sometimes it's statistical, sometimes it's descriptive, sometimes it's predictive, but you need to move from its rawest state to a place where you can then understand this data. And by understanding, that's how you drive decision making. So I know there's all kinds of definitions out there that are pretty complex, but for my team, I need you to make sense of the data to ultimately drive your decision making. That's how I see analytics at the end of the goal. At the end of the day, it has to be making decisions. Okay. So with that in mind, making decisions coming through within that stuff, what does that process look like for you and your team? How are you, how are you deciding what to do? You know, like, where are you going within that stuff? Is it coming top down, being directed? Are you going out and kind of, for lack of a better term, on a treasure hunt? What, what, what does that look like for you? And kind of how do you begin that process? So, so it does vary client to client. I will say that. Um, but one thing that my team has adopted here is uh, something called data discovery. So anytime we have a new client or a new analytics project, um, we need to spend time in what is a discovery phase. Uh, I need to sit with the business, sit with the key stakeholders, um, because here's the thing about analytics, you know, we have our techniques and our methods that can be applied universally, right? But there's so much knowledge that subject matter experts bring to the table that help to kind of guide your analytical techniques uh, that it's necessary to sit with them. So in our first few stages, you know, we may have three meetings with the client that are all literally based on, uh, tell me about the data that's being collected, the systems in which the data is being collected and how it's being stored, uh, the frequency in which the data is updated. And then we get into, okay, now that you have the data, what do you do with it? 
what types of reporting do you do? What types of analysis you wanna do with it currently? And then the last question is, what do you desire to do with it, right? So it's here we are today, but how do we get to this future state? So through that data discovery process, we learn these things about them. And based on those conversations, it then guides you know, our methods, right? So is it gonna be a data mining project, a predictive analytics project, or a dashboarding type project? Those are like pretty, some of the most common ones that we see popping up in our field. Um, and based on these conversations, that guides the analysis. The last thing you wanna do is build a complex model and they say, hey, we just want a dashboard. <laughs> we just want <laughs> to be able to, to analyze our data. So it is very client driven, um, but based on our understanding of the data, that tends to, to really uh, you know, shift our cycle, right? If we do have to build a statistical model, then we have to consider all the data that's available, how we build a representative sample. Um, what's the entire population in consideration? So there's so many other metrics that I guess are considerations that go into it, but it's very much driven by the client. So, so Keith, within this one, if I'm going into analytics, because, you know, I, I, I understand numbers, I, I get numbers, but people annoy me and I don't want to work with people at all. Like, is that something that I can assume or it sounds like you're working with people just as much as you're working with data? You know, it's, and I love that about analytics, right? You can be client facing or you can choose to not be so... <laughs> um, I work with a team of, of data scientists as well, right? And I have certain data scientists that say, hey, uh, you know, Keith, I prefer not to be <laughs> being on the meetings. Um, and, and I love that, right? Because, um, you know, analytics is also a field where it's like reading a book. Everyone can read that same thing and get something completely different from it, which is good to have variety of thought. Don't take me wrong there. But when everyone comes up with a different idea <laughs> based on what the client wants, it's extremely expensive because we don't know what direction we're going. So sometimes I prefer not to have as many of my team members in those meetings because we're like, one, someone wants to build a model and someone says that we should just re-engineer their entire database and someone says that we should just scrap the entire project. So there's a lot going on. Um, but analytics is a field where you can find comfort in your area of expertise. Um, so, and that's why I love it. It's heavy in mathematics, but it's also heavy in like computer programming. If you want to be the database side, you can go that route. Um, so if you don't desire to necessarily interface with a client, um, that's completely fine. Um, because to be honest, for the most part, the client only can tell you so much. So it's more of a documentation setting. But when it's time to actually do the analytics work, if you're that person that says, hey, I'm really good at statistics or I'm really good at programming and that's what you want to do, guess what? The team needs that. Uh, it's it's a desirable skill set. Uh I'm going to jump into this conversation because Kid already brought up some, some of the stuff. You know, I, I teach analytic courses here at NIU and I'm passionate about a, of data, I think, as much as you. And we met a long time ago at LSU. So uh, yeah. it's, it's very, I'm very <laughs> glad that you're here. Um, I think one of the points that you made uh, that is extremely underrated when, when you're working with data is the kind of the first step, get to know the data, get to know the data from your client in your case, because if you don't know, you know, what the columns are representing, what kind of data should be in those columns. Uh, you don't even know what you can do with those data, uh, starting like just from the very beginning. Right. Um, another point though, I kind of touch up with this one is, um, you know, the client, as you said, knows their data because they collect them, many of the cases, and they probably know what they want to do with them. Uh, but how much time you guys spend in actually uh, exploring them and see if you know they needed to be uh, clean, if they need to be to be manipulated before even moving forward with you know exploring with visualization or modeling techniques. Yeah, um, so we don't. So typically for our clients, we don't promise a deliverable mm -hmm. until we've gotten our hands on the data. It's very like we know, and anytime a client comes in and say, "Hey, I need this done," uh, we sometimes do a pilot with them. And it'll be a smaller pilot saying, hey, let's sign an NDA, um, you know, to keep your data private. Um, but we kind of need to explore what you have because we have run into cases in the past where there's some uh, aggressive goals that the client has in mind for data analytics. And we want to do this, and we want to do that, we want this, but they're not collecting the data for it. And uh, are the data that's being collected isn't quite in the format or the structure necessary to produce the outcome that they want. Um, so, so we've definitely learned, and probably sometimes the hard way, 
uh, that, you know, client says I'm collecting ABC, but you get inside a client's database and client only has E and you guys never talked about E. So you're like, what happened to ABC? We, we, we said, you said you had this and this is what we were looking for when we got in here. And they're like, oh, well, you said you can do it. Well, you know, you gotta be careful what you say before you see. Um, so we've definitely gotten into this, this place in space where the data is gonna always, so we want the data to drive decision-making, right? But the data is also gonna drive the analysis. You know, without the necessary data, I, I, can't, I can't, you know, pull a, a rabbit out of a hat um, if you don't have the necessary data points. In fact, we're struggling right now with a client that has some metrics that they want measured and they're, they're really important metrics but they haven't collected the data for it. Um, and we, you know, we tell them all the time, you know, today is a day where we can start collecting those metrics. We can help you. And that's why I love that we're a software and data analytics because we have the, 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 the software side where it may need to be a custom integration or we need to go into the back end of the database and make sure they can collect these data points. And then we can feed them through our analysis, our mathematical model. Um, but it, it, you're right, it's extremely touchy um, because I, I think that's why analytics is so important that you don't just understand like techniques, but you understand data. Do you data? Because at the foundation level, you need to understand data storage, data structure, data techniques, uh, data transformations, because if you can't get that part right, then the outputs would never end up being what you want them to be. No matter how good you are at modeling, no matter how good you are at dashboarding, if you don't understand data at its core, you will struggle to deliver consistent results uh, or even drive decision-making that sound. Uh, and that's, that's my position on it. And, and I think like, uh, like, again, connected to this, this is like, we, we pretty much always use the word garbage in, garbage out. So if the data are not good, then your results would be biased by, by what the data are, right? Yeah. And, and so yeah, you can go farther in the analysis or maybe even present, you can run the models, but maybe they don't have the meaning that they should have. And then you tell somebody, hey, make this decision and they, they take it and then it's completely wrong because the data that you have at the beginning is uh, needs to be pre-processed or needs to be cleaned or needs to be transformed. So, yeah. Keith, as you're talking about understanding data within that stuff, I, th I think a lot of people come in to this area expecting it to to be a science, right? And, and it is like I'm, I'm not I'm not discrediting that one. Again, you need to understand the elements, as in you know the the world we're we're working in. But at at, at some point, I, I feel like there's still a little bit of of human intuition or human creativity that the artistic side of that stuff. And I, if I'm interpreting what you're saying correctly, it almost comes down to that last part. So you've done all of the science and now you have these results and there, there's, there's a little bit of, of artistic ability there. How do you know when you're right? Like how, how when it comes to that decision-making and you're saying that we want consistent results, we want that stuff. How do you know when you can say, this is what we're recommending? Because I, I don't think even with all of this information, you can be 100% certain. Yeah, um, that's a very good point. Uh, I, I think that's probably the biggest disconnect between academia uh, and the real the real world experience. This is what we love talking about is, is how <laughs> academia is not so the real if, world. If you're, if, you're a student Go for you're, it. If, if you're a student and you're listening, this, this is by far the biggest disconnect is um, what you see from a science perspective in the textbook versus what you actually get in reality. Um, and I have, I have two interns right now that uh, have said like, I just can't, is this what they meant in school when they said messy data? <laughs> and I'm like, precisely, um, <laughs> because there is a, there is almost a, there is a creativity aspect of it, um, because you have to, when you think about even data transformation um, and, and creating, you have to be able to even envision data that's not yet there, or how do you derive additional fields from what you already have? And, and this is where I guess, you know, having the conversation with the client becomes really important. Um, but, but to go back to your question, Russ, in, in terms of how do you know when you have it right? Um, I think first it boils down to speaking with the actual user of the data. 
mm-hmm. which would be declined in this case. So I, I can, because I've had times where I'm like, it makes sense to me and it doesn't make sense to them. So it's keeping them in mind, but also um, testing how consistent the data is. So if there's an assumption to be drawn, so we see, hey, every time you know this type of event happens, we see this occur as well. Does this hold true month after month after month our analysis after analysis? Because we had a, a piece where we just added new data into a project for a client that was analyzing uh, different crime in various areas. And, we pulled in data for the most recent month and it literally almost broke everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I went back to my team and I said, Hey, you know, what, what's going on here? What, what, what did we miss here? Were we overzealous in our assumptions that we imposed here? Um, because that's where your consistency is going to come from. If we all of a sudden add new data and things start to break, then unfortunately we are wrong in how consistent we were in our initial assumptions. Um, so sometimes, you know, and people hate to hear you say it, but analytics is very much trial and error. Mm. You know, it, it, it's, you want it to be this perfect science. And I know you learned this beautiful model in undergrad, and this is how the technique should work every time. But, you know, never told you have to do seven transformations on one variable just to find the right transformation because it keeps skewing and biasing your results. So sometimes it really is trial and error. And it's being able to, to get your hands dirty and understand what's driving things that are not correct. Um, same thing applies from a visualization perspective. You may have thought this graph was going to be perfect and this is going to be so intuitive. You put it in, everyone's like, what is this? <laughs> what are you trying to show here? And you realize that ah, I got to go back to the drawing board. So I think analytics definitely takes some tough skin. Um, if you're a perfectionist and analytics will drive you insane. <laughs> it, it will literally drive you insane because some of the things you assume would, <laughs> would surely work um, won't always work. So. And kid, I mean, I think you, you, you're saying something that is extremely important. It is an iterative process by nature, right? You, you might think at the beginning that something is going to work, that some transformation is what you need, that those visualizations are, are the good visualizations that you should make for your client. And then when you run to the model, then everything doesn't make any sense. And so you, you have to go back to the transformation and then get back to the visualization and run again those models yeah, yeah, until you... Awesome. You, you know, it, it is an iterative process and you are right. You need to love, you have passion for the data because you don't want to stop at the first model that you run and say, oh, that's it. You know, that's a regression. This is my R square and I'm done, right? Good to go. Right, you, you can do that, right? You, you, you have always to uh, have kind of driven by the fact that like, I can do better than that. And, and, and maybe I need to double check this with other type of modeling and, and see if, if this is consistent or... Uh, you know, n- just never stop. And I know it's, I know it's, I think you're right. I think that, I mean, at least we, I think we are trying a lot to kind of teach these kind of uh, things when it is uh, like in school, but it, it is true that like if, at times we use terms that students say, hey, I, this is how it works in real life. But, you know, doing research, you need data, you need to analyze data. And yeah. in a company, you need the same thing. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I, <laughs> I will, I'll invite you to my class as well. <laughs> <laughs> so Keith, you said a, a, a kind of a, I'm going to use it. Yeah. A, a trigger word for me within this stuff, because uh, right now I, I think we, as a society, uh, accept analytics and accept data when it comes to social media, when it comes to purchasing stuff on Amazon, we, we kind of know that stuff. Um, but more and more, this, this data is being used to make very impactful, important, um, and from a societal level, just completely transformational um, decisions. So you mentioned looking at crime and statistics within that stuff. Um, as we're talking about this being a science, yet you even mentioned there's a huge disconnect between it being an accurate science within that one. I feel like it's important to know that there are inherent biases within some of this stuff here. And there are, we know this, whether it's just the data, whether it's it's the, the, the groups of people that are marginalized or, or maybe even spotlighted, hotlighted, whatever we want to call it, through in that stuff. 
one of the most impactful books that I've read or ever read about this is, is Race After Technology by Rua Benjamin. If anyone is interested in it, she's incredible and, and her work is enlightening. As someone who's working in this stuff, how do you attack um, the bias in data that, that, that is there that you can see? And then how do you try and, and adjust that for stuff maybe you don't see until it could be a little bit too late? Or is that even part of your process? I guess I'm, I'm trying to get an, an understanding of that. Right. So I haven't, I haven't worked in the, the social, like I guess more of the social analytics space as much. Um, but even as it pertains to like the crime data, um, you know, it's even to a location level, right? If you're examining uh, crime rates in a, in a given zip code, um, and then you start to look at the demographics of the zip code, right? So mm -hmm. you look at the demographic, comp the demographic composition. So it means race, gender, age, income. Mm -hmm. um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people know what the drivers are here in Louisiana, here in Baton Rouge, uh, for those areas. This is what's leading to it. So, mm -hmm. you know, is it? And this is where we talk about correlation versus causation, right? These, <laughs> this is a very sensitive conversation um, mm -hmm. all the time, and. Anytime I'm presenting any type of findings that our team has on the crime data side, um, it's always in terms of, um, you know, a possible relationship mm. that exists. Um, this is what the data indicates, but we try to stray away from the words of like, this means this. Mm. Uh, you know, the reason why crime is so high in this zip code is because X, Y, and Z. We can say that our data supports that when we look at you know our correlation coefficients that are, are represented in this model that there is a strong relationship between education levels and percent of like violent crimes that are taking place in this area we're not saying who's responsible for it or who's causing it but we do see that as the education level continues to fall there is an uptick in a percent of violent crimes so from a policy perspective, are we looking at implementing or implementing policies that are aimed at pro providing more education? Can we can we tackle the calls without necessarily demonizing or criminalizing any specific group? So, you know, it, it's it's very, it's very touchy um, for <laughs> sure. But uh, I think more than anything, it's always talking in terms of relationships. Right. Uh, when we started talking in terms of specific subsets of people or specific subsets of society, whether it be crime related or political, um, when you start talking about groups of people and not relationships, because the data, even if you perform a cluster analysis, right, where we're looking at clustering like individuals or like areas, um, the similarities in those areas still may not tell you the entire story. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> on, on an aggregate level, we can say that, you know, these areas share these common um, attributes. These are make these areas similar, but I can't say that, you know, zip code 10419 is synonymous with 10408 because they have the same crime levels. That, that's just inaccurate without truly understanding what's going on at, at the core. So, you know, it's, I don't know, man, it, it's a, it's a field that sometimes I'm like, ah, I love learning about these things. But when you go to like a town hall and you prevent, present your findings and you see the the offense and the outrage that some people have. You're like, oh man, let's, let's not go down that route. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and that's that's where I guess I, I guess it, it, a lot of analytics can be used to to create some of those uh, those oh, no catchy doubt. newspaper titles. You oh, know, like you know, without, ice cream. The data shows. The data <laughs> exactly. shows, and you know, exactly. it's like. The data is factual, but I'm also like, where are you getting your sources from, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly. Okay, so I'm very glad that at least, you know, there's people like you saying, okay, we're aware, we we see this, we know what it's being used for, instead of it just being like, we'll see, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so on, on that track, a, as a human in this society as well, removed from, you know, an, an analytics specialist, an expert, a data scientist, how do you feel about having your data collected? Do you, do you, when you get the terms and, and agree, like, do you say yes, or are you, are you off the grid and you're just collecting everyone else's and I'm like, okay, I need to change you know, my lifestyle. <laughs> you know, being, being in the part, I guess, being in the field of analytics and then, like now actually seeing and also working on the software side, just seeing some of the things that are being tracked, you know, it's kind of scary. Honestly, it's, it's living in a world where you're just so it's, it's impressive um, the amount of uh, the amount of information that that is on file about you, and um, you know I've reached a point of, of of 
I'm at peace with them collecting my information, right? Uh, I feel like it would take a lot more effort for me to avoid it than, than it would be. So I'm still very conscious, right? When I go to different websites, you know, like, even like, I'm, I'm so happy that Apple decided to ask you if they could track you now. Now, whether they decide to track you anyway is very different, but they at least ask you, you know, would you allow this app to track you? And I'm usually no. Um, but I think we're living in a world, especially if I'm going to truly embrace the field of data science and embrace the field of analytics. And that also means embracing the data collection measures that are taking place. Um, because the more data that's available, uh, the more accurate decisions become. The more data that's available, the faster the decision time can be. But also the more data that's available, um, it also means decisions become very stale very fast because what was relevant yesterday it's not relevant today. So it's kind of a double-edged sword at times if you think about it. Mm -hmm. um, but, but as an individual, you know, I see all the things that are being tracked and I'm, you know, I'm also aggregating some of this data for analysis purposes. Um, and I tell people like, you know, there's one thing to be tracked, but there's another thing to just willingly and recklessly give out information. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, I try and caution between the two because there is a difference, right? Yeah. You can't always control that Google is tracking your searches, right? Because you search for you know, buying um, laundry detergent on Google, and then you go to, you know, five other websites and the, the ads are all about laundry detergent. You know, unfortunately, some of those things you, you can control, but <laughs> to what extent can you control it? <laughs> Versus, you know, someone sending you a random email requesting information for some random survey from some random university that they're doing it on and you giving all of your information to them. Because this is where I think now we talk about cyber analytics becoming a very prominent growing field in today's world where it's about how do you not just analyze these attacks, but how do you understand what's leading to these types of attacks? So in the presence of, you know, these nine or 10 indicators, the probability of this actually being like a, like a phishing attempt or some type of other email scam, you know, that's where you can use your model to predict it. So are these attributes all present? So now you can start to give out flags to companies. This is like, you know, CrowdStrike and these big cybersecurity companies, they're able to flag things and say, hey, we didn't let this through because we recognize that, you know, in the presence of this mathematical model that's underlying it, it was going to be a risk. So I know I kind of detoured in that conversation no, that a bit, cool. <laughs> but uh, I think there's, there's definitely a difference between, you know, data being collected about you and you being recklessly sharing data. Is there... Yeah. Is there one uh, one piece of data? Sorry, Biagio, and then I'll, uh, the, I'll turn it over to you. But is there one piece that that you see being collected that you're like, that's weird? Like, I don't like, can you recall that? That you're like, that's, I'm not sure I like that. <laughs> we work very closely with like census data. Mm -hmm. And some of the data that the census ACS survey has, I'm like, who gave you this? Who literally sat here and told you that they were this age and they spent this much money per month on like, you know, shampoo products. Like, how did you get this? Like how many households did you survey to get this information? And, and it's very, I mean, you're talking like sometimes nine, 10 levels deep in some of the subject tables that they, they use. So it's like, did someone share this or was this a guesstimate? Yeah. Was this, yeah. Was this an imputation technique? Because I just can't <laughs> see someone giving you this level of, like, yeah, surely I spend $78.22 every month <laughs> on my shaving products. Like, I just, you know, it's, it's rare, but it's, it's there, man. Consumer, consumer purchasing is very interesting data. I will say that. Got it, got it. <laughs> I, I was like, um, I, again, going on the direction of the, how much data that we share, like sometimes we share on social media without even being asked about them uh, and how sensible they are. I, I do believe that like really data is the new money, right? The company pay for having other consumer data. Yeah. Uh, they, they are what driven their decision. So it, it is valuable. You, you get enough for free, but in the end, you're giving them access to all your data that they're going to sell to third party company and, and so on and so forth, right? So we, nothing is for free, I would say. And, and those are the consequences. Like they would be able to, you search for a shaving product and they're going to, Give you an advertising for that. So uh, again, from from your point of view, and uh, even given the the kind that you're having, um, one thing that you were mentioning also before was about the amount of data there is now available, right? So the more data there you have, the better is your decision. But what about 
how much is more difficult for you guys to transform those data into information and you know what kind of technique do you guys use to handle those kind of situations oh great question um because the the census data points um i think census collects around twenty-seven thousand data points um which may not sound like a lot but when you start trying to build a model twenty-seven thousand, what you do with twenty-seven thousand data points man you gotta <laughs> build something down here so um you know my team takes a series of techniques even before we get to the statistics piece right because even wanting to pull this through a PCA model and get some, some principal components done, um, you know, so that you can now make sense of a smaller subset of these variables. Before you even get there, you need to understand what's even going on with the data. Like, no, what's your end goal, right? So if there's something, some objective in mind, if there's some um, objective in mind that you're, you're interested in exploring, um, I think the, the question that you have to ask yourself is, okay, what types of things are likely to be indicators of that? So you may start off with like a, a correlation analysis, just simply trying to understand, is there any correlation that exists between, you know, what your outcome is and what your actual independent variables are? Um, so you, you can start there. And then as you start to migrate a bit further, um, I know some people are still fans of some of the traditional methods for uh, dimension reduction techniques such as uh, a large stepwise regression, but I think computationally is extremely expensive when you have that volume of data. For me, I look at that as being like a, as you try to narrow down an already fitted model, maybe you can you can dive into it, but I don't really see it as being a, a dimension reduction uh, technique. So um, I would say PCAs pop up pretty frequently um, for our team, but even, even beyond that, um, I'm drawing a blank right now because I actually haven't worked in, in this one lately, but there's a like a regression model that's similar to a decision tree that is helpful in variable selection. Now, the name of that technique off the top of my mind, I, I can't call it because I actually haven't had to use it in, in probably one or two years, uh, but it also works very well with large amounts of data. Um, you know, unsupervised techniques take a lot of, take a lot of data. There's, there's no way around that. But they're also extremely efficient with, with getting some of these larger sets down to a, a smaller uh, piece of data. So I think it, it varies based on, on what the end objective is. But I know, you know for us, using a, a PCA or a factor analysis have been long tried and tested techniques um, that, that our team relies on. And then from those PCAs, being able to start assigning meaning to what that, what that component represents becomes really important because now we can you know, assign a meaning to what a component represents or what's, you know, loading in that component, then we can start to frame a story about, hey, these are the, in summary, the types of grouping. So say you're building something that is, is designed to look into poverty levels and you go through PCA and you start to, to recognize that there are a lot of variables that are clustered in closely together that have to deal with, um, we'll say uh, education attainment, GED or no GED, highest level of education obtained, master's or doctorate degree, then you start to, to build this component that says, hey, this tells us a lot about education. So we now realize that there's an education piece that is extremely important in helping us understand, you know, what may be a poverty driver. So it's just kind of that approach um, has been helpful for us in, in getting it small. We had, no, we had no choice but to go with some big bucket technique, honestly. Well, I mean, 27,000 variables, it's a lot of, you know, columns. I, I tell my students, motivate why in your analysis you select only some variables and you exclude others or stuff like that. But when you have 27,000 of them, you, you cannot even like even think about it. And in PCA, uh, I mean, for those that they don't know, like it's going to group those variables. They are similar together and probably transform them in something that convey the same information, but it's just like you reduce the one, the one that you're using, right, for your analysis. So, yeah, definitely. Uh, but what about in terms of roles? Like, if you have billions of observation, how you guys are handling that? Um, that's that's another really good question. Uh, for us, it's more so feeling, finding out what's the the best sampling technique. Um, because you know, if we take out to to truly understand what the population is comprised of, right? This may be some of your, you know, some of your common, I guess, summary statistics, if you will, that, that help you to describe what's taking place. So you can look at this on an aggregate level, or you can look at it by like a variable distribution level. So maybe you're looking at individual variables, maybe you don't have 20,000 variables, maybe you have 100 variables that you're looking at. 
And if you pull those data from the entire population, and if you're able to do the calculations on that data, you, you begin to formulate, okay, this is what this data represents on the population level. Now, if I start to sample this data, and depending on the type of sampling technique that I'm applying, this will help you to understand, have I nailed down a sample that is, I guess, statistically significant enough or close enough to what those population measures are. So if the population has, you know, say a mean income of, of that entire population that's of, you know, 70K, but I plot this sample and, and I'm looking at an average income of 25,000, then what I have is not necessarily representative of what, because when we think about like sampling to population, we always think about distribution. Mm -hmm. Are we capturing a similar distribution that we find in the population? And sometimes I'll be honest, sometimes getting the population data can be difficult because if your population is extremely large, then running any computation on that population can run you into a ton of issues. So sometimes it's about, you know, I guess, how many sampling techniques does it take to get to a reasonable sample? So it may not just be a single random sample. You may be, you need to take in samples to actually de derive an actual complete sample. I mean, if at the end of the call, maybe I can introduce you some of my students, they can run on the whole population because I'm teaching them big data analytics. <laughs> oh, that's what I'm talking about, man. They, they will save your time. <laughs> what, what tools are you guys using? Are we using Spark uh, with R? So Sparkly R is the package and uh, they learn how to scale whatever is the, if you guys have a cloud computing server, for example, they can yeah. run all the whole data. We do. Yeah. That will be pretty good. <laughs> That's awesome. You, give, your, give your students a project. Yeah. Well, next semester. <laughs> <laughs> so Keith, as you're, as you're doing this stuff, I, I know, you know, analyzing data, looking at all this stuff is, is your, your day job and, and you have clients kind of directing what you're doing. Is there something uh, you personally would like to look at that you haven't been able to use some, some personal project that you're like, this would, I think would be very interesting or very beneficial to look at. And, and just maybe because again, you have a full-time job and all that stuff you haven't yeah. gotten to. Um, I've been heavily and recently embedded in text analytics. So this is, you know, word to veg and tokenization and, um, you know, TDF IDF. So these, I'm sorry, guys, I got these different terms. So those on the, on the phone, on the, on the call right now, but there's this emerging field of text analytics that continues to be, you know, very valuable because there's only so much you can do with your structured data that you're collecting, but there's so much more in unstructured. And when you think about companies that do a really good job of using unstructured data, think about companies like Amazon and Google, um, the only reason they can make recommendations for a product for you is because they're able to understand, you know, even by some of the review comments that you're leaving, analyzing that data helps them understand either how good the product was that you purchased, but sometimes be an indication of the next purchase you'll make. So this, you have these larger uh, market basket analysis and just having to purchase data alone is just not enough. So how do you marry more in together? So that's where I'm spending a lot of my time now. But I think I would love to spend more time in, I guess, like more ensemble modeling. Um, I, I don't really have the, the bandwidth or the capacity for it, but uh, it kind of goes back to what you said, Biagio, of like you build one model and you're really excited about that model and you want to run with that model. But how many other models could you have considered that mm. would have yielded similar, if not better results? Um, so when you think about, you know, reaching a final model, would it make sense to have a logit model that's been constructed along with some other, you know, probabilistic model that could go along with that logit model while also checking to see if there's a decision tree that would also be a good technique um, wrapped in with some other big data technique. So when you start to look at those individually, then, you know, on the aggregate, do they produce similar results or is there a way to combine them together to build an even better model that you know supersedes any of these on their own, um, and I just don't have the, I don't really have the time or, or, or even the, the the capacity for it right now. But we tried it for a, a while back, just an experimentation phase in Python, um, and the models take a lot of time to train. We train them every night, so we just let them run overnight. Um, but they actually, it, it was pretty powerful when you when you can wrap yourself around 
not being married to any one technique. So if you're looking at a given prediction, you know, even row wise, it's nice to know, you know, what the logit model predicted versus what the decision tree model predicted versus what some other probability model predicted versus, okay, how do you perform your weighting? Which one do you take as being the best? Or can you do some level of, of tallying? So if four out of five predicted one, one predicted zero, now you have confidence that it's likely gonna be a one. So it's just that level of combining. I think that just really, when you think about like having an accurate model or a model that, that's considering more than just one space of, of modeling, then I think that's where, if you're someone that's really into statistics and you wanna you know, get better into modeling, I think it's really important to, you don't ever narrow yourself to just one technique um, for a given problem. I mean, uh, Keith, going back to, to your interest in tax mining, I, I think is, is also my passion. I did it for my, my master. I did it for my PhD. Awesome. I, think it, I think it's very underrated, right? Because many times the kind of information like reviews, they are, they are spread by people, right? They are broadcasted with the rest of the world and they really affect other people in making a decision to, I don't know, buy a product or go to an hotel, uh, and it is so important that you get an understanding of the, your customer from what they share online, right? Because they will affect other people. And, and, and as you said, these are structured. So it's not like you can make, you can run a model as it is, but then you can have different techniques that can help you kind of quantify, you know, the, the word frequency or uh, extract the hidden topic that are discussed in there and do a sentiment analysis and get what, what people are feeling. So then yeah, you can yeah. make decision based on that. So, uh, that that is you know sometimes even uh people think about only big large corporations should focus on that uh but i would argue that nowadays pretty much every size of company that has a you know an online uh store should should worry about that and and think about doing some type of text analysis to to get a sense of what are the feeling and and also i don't know if you know about that now company can reply to those reviews right so how do you reply to those reviews? Uh, is that a better way or, uh, I don't know, uh, it, to do that? I think that's, that's, that's just fascinating to me. Uh, so on this, how many projects you guys have done in kind of this area of text analytics? If, There's, if, I would if say the last three projects we've worked on has had a, a text analytics component. Um, so actually, I work also as a data scientist for the National Science Foundation. So um, some of the heavier work that I've been doing in the text analytics field has been um, from the National Science Foundation side. And uh, it evolves around like grants and you know, different proposals that are being submitted in. And if you want to get into like topic modeling, right? So you, people are submitting these, some of these things are hundreds of pages, man. And you know, it's not to say they're not being read because they are being read, but is there a way yeah. in three seconds to, get us. to literally scan this entire document and spit out the common themes. Yeah. You know, that's where I see a lot of value. And even for, so we were actually doing a, a project, a pilot project with, um, with a police department and a, uh, I can't name the source, we're using a, a data source. And what we were doing were, we actually were getting live feeds of the data that was being collected through this partnership with the uh, police department. And but based on what was being reported, we were feeding this through a model that could then make a prediction on if what was being said was crime related or not. Now, it took a ton of data to train this model. And you also, you know, think about text mining, semantics and, and actual word meaning is extremely important. And, you know, words also have to be contextualized, right? Like I can't oh, just yeah. take this one word without considering the context around it. This is where, Diaz, you probably know for sure, and I'm sure Rush, you know as well, especially when it comes to like text analytics, this is when your techniques begin to explode because when you think about it, comprising a word vector, there's so many other things to consider about that word. And if you're doing like you know, bag of words or like a skip gram, are, are you considering the, the three words that are surrounding this word or what's mm -hmm. the approach you're gonna take? So it gets to be extremely messy at times, but we did that and the model actually predicted pretty well. I mean, we had to go through always and validate the results because it was a pilot model. And I think we were around like 80% accurate uh, in terms of taking the text and being able to predict them. I mean, of course there are certain words that just automatically go off, right? Gunfire and certain like shots and things like that that are consistently were being tagged um, 
as being crime related. So I, know, I think there's so many, so many places of application for it. Um, any company that's wishing to get additional meaning from their data, uh, or even just from a, an academic perspective, I was that kid in college where I loved connecting to the Twitter API. And from the Twitter API, I would search a certain hashtag, you know, whatever was trending in that moment that was really popular. I searched a hashtag. And I think Twitter probably throttles their API to maybe 5,000, 10,000 tweets. Um, I think it's per hour or maybe it's per minute. But I love to aggregate that data and then feed into do a sentiment analysis because I would like to know what type of emotions were being invoked during that period of time around that specific topic. Uh, and I think that's where, you know, a lot of these companies that are pushing new products you know, don't make no mistake about it. They're feeding your reviews through a sentiment model. They want to know what type of emotion is being invoked because we're living in a world in a society right now where you know a lot of things are driven on emotion and passion. So they want to ensure their understanding what type of emotions is this new product, you know, projecting from our from our users. Uh, so they'll feed that through. They can tell you know right away if something is effective. Um, and sometimes it's you know it's the, the opposite side. Sometimes things are released for controversy. So they're looking for there to be a stir. <laughs> it's not, they're not looking for you to be calm. They're looking for, you know, was the sentiment angry? Was the sentiment frustration? Was it offense? You know, those are the things they're looking for. Uh, so it, it's, it's crazy, but there's, there's so many use cases for, for text mining. I think it just, and then I'm going to leave it to, to, to Russ. I think the thing that drives me crazy the most when I do text mining, especially I'm looking for extracting emotion, is irony. I think I think it's very, very difficult to catch that. Well, a human can do that, but a human cannot read a million reviews, but a computer will always struggle to kind of get. I mean, they are getting better, but it's, especially when they are word-based and you create the sentiment based on different scores, then it's going to be like... Zero, irony, yeah. and, irony and sarcasm. You, you yeah, just can't yeah. capture sarcasm. It's just not possible. It just, yeah. There's no way around someone being sarcastic. You just can't, you can't quite get the model to know that they're just joking or they didn't mean it like that. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to flag it. And, and you, know, um, you know, I'll say this and I'll, and I'll be done, but we also noticed that especially like Twitter data, um, you know, when someone posts like lyrics or something that, that's irrelevant, you, you know, it's not them really saying it as much as it is being sung or, or being repeated, I should say, in a, in a verbal context. But, you know, those types of things are just really difficult uh, to yeah. capture in text mining. You're like, where, where did this come from? And you go back and you read the tweet and you're like, oh, they didn't mean oh, it like that. that. <laughs> That's just Jay-Z. He's, he's good. He's good. He's good, man. No, no problems here. He, he just... <laughs> It was it was it was a Grammy album. It's all good. <laughs> exactly. This is the blueprint. You can't you can't do any <laughs> condemnation on that. Um, so here's where I, I find analytics to be very interesting right now, and, and this is just an opinion question, Keith. But I, I think where analytics first became mainstream, or at least the the application of it was, was baseball and and the, the the kind of money ball type thing of using this one to do that. At that time, there there were a lot of luddites, a lot of people saying this is not useful, this is not beneficial. Um, do you think that has changed? Do you think bene businesses have have really kind of bought into it? And your have you seen that switch in your job that you're not having to sell the benefits of doing? analysis as much as what can you do or is there still some of that where you have to convert people first or businesses i would say that i think uh the field of analytics is is by far one of the fastest growing in terms of adoption but it's also one of the fastest in opposition as well um, still, still and, today, and it's difficult because i think the issue that many people will learn, especially as you get out into the real world, is not that people don't want to do analytics. It's that they don't understand it. Mm. And so it's, it's like the adoption is, is not necessarily, you know, solely because they don't trust that what you're doing is sound. I mean, we know it's statistically sound from the, the metrics in which it's been derived. And it's how we actually do a lot of things in the medical space today. Um, so we know it's sound. We even think about like a COVID vaccine and the testing that goes through it. All that's based in experimental statistics, you know? So it, it's, it's sound, but we get to the business level, you know, some people still view analytics as a black box. 
So you do what? You do what and what happens? What do you do with it? You just take it and it goes into the dashboard. And then, so there's two things happening, right? There, there are people that are, that are extremely slow to adopt. I feel like it's, it's, it's the fastest growing, but also one of the slower adopted fields, if that makes sense. I know that's kind of contradictory, but I'm, it's growing because people know they have to do it but the adoption rates are not quite as fast as the actual field of analytics. The field of analytics is rapidly growing and continue to move with new metrics and new methods and new techniques and new software literally every day. But the adoption hasn't quite caught up. And I think that there's two part, right? Some people don't understand it. And the other part is people think it's too easy. And that's, that's a struggle that we see on the client side is, oh, why wouldn't I just hire somebody else to just do this? no one's stopping you hire somebody <laughs> else to do it and we've had clients that have taken that route I had a client reach out this week that ended up hiring someone to do some work for him and I was like you know that's fine I'm like we just don't understand how this data is doing x y and z I'm like well you know I no longer consult you so I, I can't I'm not really at liberty to discuss this but this is why I want you to understand that like analytics again it boils down to not just knowing the techniques but understanding the data the underlying data structure so I, I think we're running into a space now where you know people want to do it but they also kind of want to downplay the complexity of it until they get stuck in it and they're like okay this is not as easy as i, I thought it was going to be or someone you know microsoft now you buy 365 off you get a power bi license mm-hmm. you know free power bi so now everyone's making dashboards without understanding data structure, without understanding data visualization, without understanding how linking happens on the back end. So why is this dashboard not updating when I choose this filter? Well, because your data is not linked or mapped properly uh, from a relational schema perspective. So it's just those types of things that that make the the analytics feel um, sometimes a bit difficult. But I will say this much, for anyone that's majoring in in any IS or analytics type of field, the runway is extremely long. People don't realize the analytics is still, in my mind, a very new field um, in terms of what the future holds. There's still so much adoption that has to take place that you're in the right place if that's your career path. And so, even if you don't see the immediate returns, you, you have the time for it. So Keith, I wanna, I wanna jump right on that one because I think it's a perfect way to wrap up the, this awesome conversation. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. it for, for anyone coming into this field, into analytics, doing all of that stuff, what, what are some skill sets that, that you, would, you would want to see in an in intern, in, in a young professional that you're hiring? What are those things that you're looking at as essential? And then maybe that next tier of like, uh, maybe not essential, but this would be really beneficial for you um i'll say the first thing is probably a a willingness to learn (laughs) and to to experiment with new things because i think sometimes you come in and this is how you did it in in your classroom this is how you did it there but you know you have to be willing to to adjust and sometimes adjusting means new tools but sometimes it means new methods or even new processes on how you do things so the first thing is just being um willing to learn and i guess adaptable to new environments uh, when I think about skills, you know, all too often I see one or the other. Someone is really, really talented, statistically speaking, or they're really talented from a database data perspective. And I will say having a good balance is really, really important. I cannot underestimate the importance of being statistically sound, but also understanding data or understanding data, but also being statistically sound, um, because you're going to run into a, a place where these will always cross that either your analysis is going to be incorrect because you didn't quite understand the data or, or vice versa, you're going to have a, some type of way where you really understood the statistics, but the data was wrong. I mean, I said that vice versa. Our data was wrong. You don't understand why your statistics was coming out wrong. So there's just a, having those two paired and coupled together are extremely important. Talk about like different techniques um, or even tools. Uh, if, if you're going to, you know, some people are RU, some are Python users. I was a huge R user. I continue to love R in my heart, but when I when I joined the federal government working as a data scientist, guess what? Had to hop over to Python. Uh, so a lot of my world revolves around Python now. And I couldn't just say, oh, you know, all I do is R, I'm sorry, it's so I can help you. Um, so I think more than anything, you know, the software tools do differ. The programming language syntax do differ, but as long as you understand what you're trying to do, 
you can always find the answer, whether that's on Stack Overflow or going through some documentation. You just need to know how to approach the problem. It's not so much always about the tool as it is about what you need the tool to do. Um, and if you can kind of narrow in on that, then it'll save you a ton of time. Um, so, you know, try your hardest not to be married to any one tool, any one technique. Be good at things, don't get me wrong. But uh, in a field that's this new, because it's still new, there's a lot of changes. There's, you know, people said, you know, five years ago that R was going to be the future for statistics and there was nothing going to even come close to it. And then, you know, out of the wazoo, Python starts crawling back out of the hole and you're starting to do all these packages and, and stats mods and, um, and, and, and all the other ones that are in there. And what happens is you're like, oh my God, like where, where, where did this come from? I was, I was spending all my time on R, how did this happen? So uh, I encourage you to, to keep an open mind. Same thing with dashboarding, whether it's Power BI or Tableau or Click, um, you know, having that same mindset, database language, whether you're in SQL Server or, um, you know, something with IBM or Cognos or um, Oracle, you know, still the syntax still differs slightly in some of those MySQL. Um, but if you know what you're trying to do with the data, then you can find a solution for it. I mean, Kit, just like, uh, I know we are very close to the end, but uh, I think one point that is important that you, what you're saying is if you have, if you are not just coding because you're memorizing code, but if you have an understanding of it, even if it's slightly changed, then you will be able to adapt and adjust based on what the people are asking you to use with. And, and going back to Python R, I know back in the days was like, actually back in my days, it was SPSS and SAS is going to run. <laughs> oh, true. I did so, SAS too, so, you're right. <laughs> yeah, right. So it's, so it's actually changing to open source software. And I think that right now is more like, there are the benefit of one of the other. Like there are some stuff that I still believe that R is superior than oh, I agree. Python and, and vice versa, right? So they are trying to integrate them. In fact, in an R markdown, you can run Python code and vice versa, right? So yeah. they 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 try to to make you understand that there is the good and benefit of both of them. So you shouldn't like uh, I mean, again, that's my opinion. You get you can have additional opinion, you shouldn't. Uh, see as oh let me learn python and you know r is bad right if you can master one of them or if you are pretty good to the point where you know as you said i can google start the floor and i can pick it up a new package i can pick it up a new function then uh it doesn't really matter which one you learn first but right. you can take the kind of the strength of both of them and and use it right. for good always so. always have a preference i'll say that preference is good <laughs> People that don't have preferences <laughs> get into a lot of trouble. If you don't know what you like, you will people, you will get thrown anything. When you get out of college and you don't know what your preference is, you're going to be very upset a lot of days in your career. So, uh, so along the lines of what Biagio is saying, so if you do have a preference in terms of a tool or a software, still state that. But what I think when you're, especially when you start your career off, though, what you don't want to do is be married. To any one way of thinking um, because then you kind of imprison yourself so maybe you will do r but you know you may become become known as the person that only can do r when truly you could do more than r it's just r is your preference so it's all about how you market yourself uh in terms of hey i'm willing to learn something new i'm just really good with this but i understand the techniques i understand what i'm doing so as long as i know you know what i need the code to do give me r give me python give me r give me sas give me javascript whatever i need to do it in i'll try you know and kids, one last question. I know, I know, this is going beyond, but uh, you're such a great speaker, and you know, we are we are advocating for analytics a lot in our classroom. What would be uh, something like a line in a in a resume? If it is a line, or if it is a GitHub repository, whatever it is, that would impress you to say, okay, this guy, I want on my team, I want in my company. What would be that? If mm. there is something for. Probably from an experience perspective or just from an overall like just... overall like like you you have a lot of resume coming on your desk and like you have to scroll through them. What would be something that capture your attention and say, okay, this guy needs to be looked at? Um, I love people that can marry the technical world and the business world together. So, you know, I I love to see that you are a you know a major in statistics or that you may be a CS student. But when I see that you're a CS student that's taking some minor courses in business or, or IT or, or vice versa, you're, you're a major that is in, you know, maybe empirical economics. I was an, I was an econ guy, but my, my minor was in ISDS. 
because I wanted to learn how to code, you know? So when I can see there being a desire to marry those two together, that always stands out to me, even at the graduate level, you know, even if you get your master's in analytics, if your background is in something like finance, then my mind kind of knows that, okay, you know, financially speaking, you have this understanding of like a macro type of world, macro environment. Uh, sometimes it gets really hard if you're just really heavy on one side, right? If you're really, really heavy on, on CS, then sometimes the business, you know, and, and sometimes guess what? The business part doesn't matter. If, if what you want to do is a, be a senior developer and you never really want to cross the hairs, but I can tell you that it, it just makes you so much more marketable when you don't just do things, but you have an attachment or understanding of the meaning behind it. And I think so often, you know, students think that I just need to know this, but you know, there's always an, you need to be able to answer the why. Why am I doing this? Why, why am I building this model? Why am I building this dashboard? Why am I writing this script? Give me the why and, and the resume for me, the why piece. If I don't know anything about you, if you can show me some technical and some business in that same resume, then my, I have some, I can formulate, okay, you know, which way I'm going. But that's, that's one thing I would say. So even if it's just an internship, so maybe you're a CS and you don't have time to take business classes. You know, this is BS, Keith. I don't have time for that. Um, well, you know, what could you do, whether it be outside of school or even some other program that allows you to get some of that business knowledge? Whether that's working part-time, somewhere where you can, can gain some of that knowledge or Coursera classes. But yeah, I think it's so important that you can, can, can speak both of those languages. I think that's, that really ultimately determines also not where you start, but also I think where you finish in your career is how well you were able to marry technical with business. Because at the end of the day, everything we do from a technical perspective is to drive decision-making. And that's at the business level. Keith, you just wrapped it right back up from the very beginning. That was the first question. That was beautiful. I love the story. This was absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for being here, Keith. I know I, I thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, for everyone listening, thank you again for being here. Don't forget to subscribe to The Gateway on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere podcasts are found. Biagio, my friend, as always, these are wonderful. Thanks for being here. And everyone, have an incredible night.